Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 16, where we have been, as you know, in the, in the study of following the Lord on His way to the cross. And, of course, as we have seen over and over again, and as this chapter as well points out, things are ramping up again with the Pharisees, as Jesus always wanted to do, for one simple reason. Whatever they believed often got passed on to the culture and and of course, being the alleged spiritual leaders of Israel, the people of Israel were, were left to uh, whatever the Pharisees were thinking at the time, whatever they thought was important. And notice in chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. This is essentially the reason that this collision of ideologies and worldviews is occurring. The Pharisees were like so many. It was a works system. It was a way for human beings to simply exalt their own view of things and what they believed was important. You heard that... uh, in, in that song, just the idea of waiting until all that's going to be given to God's people is given to them on the other side of this realm. In other words, the life we live here and now is not to be prized or cherished or esteemed as though it can offer anything, let alone a solution for the soul's problem. The Pharisees taught the opposite. They taught that they were the solution to the problem, that they had come up with it on their own. Like all false religion, they believed that, that God ought to accept what a human being comes up with with regard to its own salvation and eternal destiny. And that if there is a God, well, he has a revelation about who he is. And yet at the same time, if there is a flaw in mankind, he should overlook it. He should merely wink at it. So they misled entire generations of people, as was often the case in the history of the nation of Israel. They misled generations because they were trying to demonstrate that they could climb their way to God and therefore assume that man was more holy than God says he is and at the same time claim that though God reveals himself as holy, he's just not that holy. Not only can man get himself there and become justified in the sight of God, but God certainly isn't going to take into account or punish the flaws that are so natural to humanity. This was their problem. This was the devastating effect of their influence. And so naturally then, they loved the things of the earth. They loved reputation. They loved uh, power and influence. They loved the money that bought all such things. They loved achievements. They loved the honor of men. Jesus had already chided them for that. They loved the things of the world and loved vengeance when it came to exacting justice. Anyone who did them wrong, they wanted to see justice done in a human framework. And yet when they wronged someone, they wanted it all cleared off the decks. In fact, we saw in the story of the prodigal that they resented the mercy of God that would not give justice to someone they considered less than themselves. They were proud and arrogant and condescending in their false religion. 
And it says here in chapter 16, verse 14, that they were lovers of money. So they highly esteemed what what on earth you could have and the influence and power that it seemed to afford you in the temporary things of life. They loved their material wealth because of the power and preeminence it gave them in their religious community. They loved its political connections and what it did for them there. They loved their dealings with the surrounding culture as to its influence as they gained access to those things. They loved it. And even though they were warned by the Lord Jesus not to love such things, but to put your trust in God alone, to seek the kingdom first, nonetheless, they rejected such instruction and they trusted in the uncertainty of earthly gain, earthly things, wealth, material possessions, their reputation, their power, their preeminence. All the things God says he supplies on his terms for his glory so that God's people can use it for the advancement of the kingdom. They took it and used it on themselves. And Jesus was coming at them again and again, most notably in these final months before his death, because he was concerned that the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel were leading people to a spiritual dead end. They weren't concerned for their souls. Their love of things of the earth, the power and the money that it wielded, they were bowing down to something that had absolutely no power. It cannot secure your eternity. It cannot make you right with God. We see this in the whole entire prosperity gospel framework. False teachers who promise that God wants you to have everything you can have here and now for your own enjoyment and that that somehow is proof of his blessing. And all the while they're promising that to the unsuspecting and the vulnerable and the easily duped, they are taking their resources for their own ends. This was the Pharisees. This was who they were. These things can't commend you to God. Earthly status can gain you nothing in eternity. Reputation among men is nothing. And yet if you prize them, there's a problem. It will destroy your soul. And so here on this occasion, as we saw in our last week's study, the parable of the savvy steward, Jesus tells a little story about a guy who was a crooked accountant. And he worked for an estate, a very wealthy one. And he was dealing under the table. He was a swindler and charges were brought forward against him. And so he was held responsible for his guilt and he was terminated on the spot insofar as his stewardship. But he was to give an account. He was to bring the books and give an account. Now from an earthly perspective, all he cared about was earthly wealth. He was a swindler. And from an earthly perspective, he thought like any pagan would think, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I've got to secure some, some future here, some way to take care of myself. And so Jesus talks about this crafty plan that he implemented. We notice it in verse 3. He makes a careful assessment of his limitations, both physically and as to his reputation. He says, I, I can't work in the hard labor sense. I'm not strong enough for that. And If I get terminated, surely I'm not going to have any credibility, so that's limited. And if I go to begging, that'll be the rest of my life. And he, of course, says he's too ashamed to do that. And in his savvy, he develops a plan to secure his liabilities 
And in his savvy perception, Jesus says, he goes after his earthly security, knowing full well he's in a desperate condition. How does he do it? He made a careful assessment of his limitations, and then based upon the liabilities of those limitations, he made sacrifices today, profits that he could have had, profits that he tacked on to what men owed the estate over which he held the accounting. He took those profits, sacrificed them, so that he could have tomorrow's rewards. He secured his liabilities. He put people at obligation to him for his kindness, his gesture. And whether the business owner would have liked it or not, whether the business owner was used to getting higher profits than that, it didn't matter. In the story, Jesus makes mention that this master praised this wicked steward because he acted shrewdly. And Jesus uses that analogy as a way of drawing out implications for the Pharisees who are eavesdropping on the situation in order to expose their wrong value of things and to challenge believers, or as he calls them here, sons of light, he says in verse 8. That is, of course, a reference both to Israel as those who have the truth and should have passed it on to the people around them, but sort of kept it for themselves and hid it under their own wickedness. It is also a reference in broader terms to any Christian who has been given these great resources from God and does not use them for eternity. And so here Jesus says, the master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly, because the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own generation. In other words, they know how to get it done from an evil standpoint, an earthly standpoint. They know how to take care of their earthly security. In fact, they work for it. They live for it. They're shrewd enough to get it. And then he says, why is it that they're more shrewd about those things than even the sons of light are? So, he says to his disciples, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by the means of those things, the wealth of unrighteousness. In other words, whatever you have in this life, you are to use it for the securing of eternal things, eternal security, the heavenly things, so that when this life is over, the temporal things are here today and gone tomorrow, when they actually don't bring the security that that pagans think they'll bring, you'll be welcomed into the eternal things because you saw it rightly, you esteemed it rightly, you had a proper value framework placed upon what you've been given here. Now what Jesus does next is he turns to the lessons that we're supposed to learn from this. The two first lessons I introduced for you briefly last time, they come from this unrighteous steward's behavior. In other words, first of all, we could say that a believer is to carefully assess his personal limitations. That is to say, you're to take care of what matters to your soul. Just like this this guy took care of what mattered to his future, a Christian is to take stock as to what matters for their future. Say, what is that? Make sure you're in Christ by repentance and faith and not some earthly trust. Having made sure you're in Christ by repentance and faith, you are to live for Christ so that your assurance of knowing him grows, though it won't be perfect. You're to stand in Christ, walk in Christ, strengthen your faith in Christ, follow the word of Christ, deny yourself, take up your cross, and be a disciple of Christ. This is to carefully assess your personal need 
and the securing of your eternal future. You say, aren't I saved? And once saved, then I'm saved permanently? Yes, but the only way we would know that is by your fruit. The only way we would know is if you continue in the word of Christ, as Jesus said. Then you demonstrate that you're a true disciple. So in one sense, in a general way, we could say that in the same way this pagan was shrewd about his future and took stock of what he can and can't do. In a spiritual analogy, a sinner should take stock of what they can or cannot do in terms of their eternity. I can't save myself. I can't be holy enough to commend myself to God. I can't justify myself. I need a savior. And so I'm going to do what it takes to secure a savior. That, that led us to, to lesson number two. This shrewd manager did what any chief financial officer would do when you care about your own skin and you're in desperate need of instant set of friends who will take you in, whom you've obligated. When all, whenever your financial wheels come off, he sacrificed today's profits in order to secure his future tomorrow. Listen, how many believers live for themselves and they don't make the sacrifices today that make for the greatest blessings and usefulness of the Lord or the greatest eternal rewards. How many sinners take no stock of their eternal future? They just live it up here and now. And just like the Pharisees, they love it so. They will face God, the scriptures say, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we make all these professions in your name? Didn't we make all of these earthly achievements in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Why? Because you were lawless ones. You never actually repented of your sin. You ever, never actually lived for me. It was all show. It was all externals. And so in the same way, Jesus implicates everyone who isn't shrewd like this guy when it comes to securing what you need for your eternity. This guy would do what it took. And yet that was for an earthly prize. That was for temporary things. The things that he was shrewd enough to go after ultimately do nothing for him beyond this life. And yet Jesus says the sons of light, in other words, the people who are given light, Israel, in fact, are not as shrewd with the needs of their own souls as this greedy accountant was for an earthly prize. And Jesus says, how foolish this guy makes friends with anyone who will welcome him and meet his needs in the difficult days ahead. And Israel doesn't do what it needs to do to take care of its eternity and leads other people away from the same. Go back to chapter 12 for a moment just to remind you of what Jesus had said earlier. In chapter 12, again, people in the crowd challenging him, Pharisees listening in. Everybody challenging him with these dialogues that he was having. Notice verse 15 of chapter 12. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then you remember he told that parable about the person who stored all this stuff in his barns and made bigger barns and his soul was required of him. Your life doesn't consist in your possessions. A soul cannot be satisfied with earthly treasures is the message. And then later in verse 35, he'll say, look, be dressed in readiness. 
And he gave that other story about people who weren't ready for eternity to come. Their soul wasn't made ready. This is the whole point of verse 31 of chapter 12. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Earlier in Jesus' preaching ministry, he had said, Matthew records it in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. In other words, invest in the things that really matter. Invest in souls. Live your life in such a way that God can use you to advance souls into the kingdom. Advance sinners toward the gospel. Whatever it is God has given you, enjoy it, but don't trust in it. But seek the kingdom for it. Seek the future kingdom of Christ where everything matters and everything here is to serve that purpose and passes away as an instrument to serve that and people here lay up treasure for themselves all over the place and yet Jesus says those things fade away rust comes in and breaks it down and moths come in and ruin your nice wardrobe and thieves break in and steal it and rip it off he says don't lay up treasures on earth in that way where these things can happen to it Why? Because wherever your treasure is, what you value, there is where your heart is. So the lessons from the savvy steward, number one, carefully assess your need for your eternity, your personal limitations in getting there. Sacrifice anything today for tomorrow's spiritual rewards. And then lesson number three, what you value is your reward. What you value in this life is your reward. Back to chapter 16, notice verse 10. Jesus says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Now, the little thing that Jesus is describing here is merely the the thing of lesser value. In the story of the, the crooked accountant, he's talking about earthly things, earthly money, even ill gotten money, but even honestly gained money. It's a little thing, it matters only for temporary purposes. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It doesn't mean anything. And if you are given by God resources in this life, that's the very little thing you're supposed to be faithful with. And if you're faithful in those things, then God gives you, bestows upon you, entrusts to you the greater things, the things of eternity. Perhaps a soul redeemed as you are used by God as an influence in someone's life here and now. But certainly your reward in glory, whatever that is going to be, though we cannot imagine it, says the scriptures. He who is faithful in a very little thing, in the things of this life that don't matter much, that you never place your security in, that you should never value wrongly as if they're that important. This life is this life. It is not eternal. This life is temporal. It is corrupt. These things cannot save you. Don't trust in them. They're the very little thing that you're supposed to be faithful in. But if you're unrighteous in the things of this life, man, if you live for this life, if you treat the stewardship of lesser things here as if it is the substance of your life, that will be your reward, Jesus says. 
So we could say it this way. Here's the simple principle. How you treat the stewardship of lesser things here reveals what you value most. It reveals your estimation of things. Just think about it. Just follow this thought as he's been going with this parable. Remember that the driving point of the parable was how even a crooked accountant was shrewd enough to do what he had to do to secure what he valued most, earthly security. And remember, Jesus told the disciples that the sons of this age are more shrewd than the sons of light, meaning that though Israel had been given the light of the truth, they were frittering it away. They were trusting in things here, and they were squandering eternal rewards and leading others to do the same. And then in verse 9, he says, look, Use what you have here and now to secure eternal things. Don't trust in the things you have here. They're nothing. Use them. Think about them rightly. Estimate them properly. Put the right value on them. And use everything you're given in this life to influence your own life for the security of your soul and others in the things that matter most. Use it to advance soul care, the interests of redemption, those kinds of things. He who's faithful in the very little things will be faithful in much. Faithful here is, in this context, the word typically just means believing or full of faith, but here it conveys the sense of trustworthiness. Can God trust you with the, the stewardship of the things that he wants to use for his glory, things that will promote eternal things? Things that in and of themselves should never be trusted in, but you could use them, even the means of unrighteous wealth here, that which is corrupt and sinful and temporary, will you use them in a trustworthy manner to advance his purposes? Or will your heart for him begin to fade because you have things? Will your heart begin to fade because you begin to trust in things? How you treat the stewardship of lesser things here reveals what you value most. Now, it's true. God gives us things in this life. But our estimate of them reveals our theology and what we believe. And so when you're faithful, when you're trustworthy to put the little things of this life into proper perspective, that they are, in fact, temporary and they're to be used by you as a Christian to advance what is eternal, then you manifest that you understand God's estimate of things. You're thinking his thoughts after him. You value what he values. You look at resources and gifts and talents and achievements and your mind and your physical strength, and you know that he gave you those things by his grace alone. You have them because he chose to give them to you. How are you using them? Do you use them to go off and sin? Do your hands and your mind and your mouth and your talent and your resources and your achievements and your intellect, are those things used and given over to what matters here to pagans? Or are they submitted to God? Lord, use them however you want me to use them, particularly material wealth, because it is so easy to trust in those things. You use his resources in the way he wants them used. How do we know? Because you're faithful to see them rightly. The, the little things of this life that matter not for eternity but can be used for it. How you use them reveals what you believe about them and what your estimate is of them. 
And when you live like that, you are faithful to that, then you resist the tendency to place eternal value on material and temporal things. You don't trust in the earth. You don't entrust your life and security to things that are passing away. And you have a healthy distrust of your own heart because you know how easy it would be to put your hopes in some earthly reputation, some material wealth, some status, some power over others that money can often bring in this life. I think of someone who's achieved great things in some educational field and some discipline and then suddenly that gets taken away from them. What, is, what happens to them? Some great theologian works his whole life on some tome, some work, and submits it to his peers and his colleagues and to an adoring public, and then he gets dashed to the rocks because it gets criticized. He's invested his personal self in something that isn't eternal. He could have used it for the glory of Christ. He could have used his gifts and his intellect for the glory of Christ but chose to trust in it for himself. It's easy to put your hopes in material gain, earthly reputation, status, achievements. This is completely implicational for the Pharisees. Jesus wants them to not be able to escape the implications. They loved money. They loved its reputation, its power, and its influence. They were supposed to esteem the truth and eternal things. And to value what God values, which is the redemption of sinners before it's too late. Israel was to be that great channel of messianic blessing. They were to be the the sons of light who understood that this world is temporary and it's not our home. And to set their mind on things above rather than things on the earth. Oh no, their greed and their lust for the world shut out that light. They were to be like a city set on a hill which can't be hid. A light in the house which is to light the whole house isn't supposed to be covered up. But they covered it up. And therefore they covered up eternal influence that God intended for them to have. So they were not faithful with the little things. They were unrighteous in the use of what they had here. What Jesus does in the next two verses is just draw out the implications by looking at it from two different angles. Implication number one, verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? So here's the first sort of angle to look at this implication. Just as the unrighteous accountant's high position was no longer entrusted to him, so God will not entrust the rewards of eternity to those who don't value eternity. It's pretty plain. If you don't value eternity, you're all about this life here, you're all about living it up here, all your comfort here, and you have little ways that you sort of satisfy yourself that you're doing what is right, but ultimately in your heart of hearts, you value the things that you've achieved here and the things that you enjoy here The the Lord will not entrust to you the rewards of eternity because those are not things that you care about. Now, the unrighteous manager was shrewd and desperate enough to let his greed work for him. But what do the people of God do with the stewardship given to them? Are you as desperate about your spiritual state, your spiritual growth, your spiritual uh, state and status of your heart, your spiritual condition 
as this pagan accountant was about earthly things that are the little things that don't matter for eternity? If all someone cares about is getting all they can here so that they consume it for their own reputation and their own fulfillment and their own earthly heritage, listen, beloved, that's your reward then. There it is. Heaven is not entrusted to you because you thought nothing of heaven while on earth. You live for your best life now. You're losing a far better life later because that doesn't really matter to you anyway. Looking at it from another angle, verse 12, here's a sort of a second angle from which we draw an implication. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is someone else's, who will give you that which is your own? That's right. If somebody entrusts something to you and you misuse it, how can they trust you to, to actually own the very thing that, that they own and you were a steward of? You don't know how to take care of what is important. It's the same basic implication from the angle of our responsibility to be good stewards of what God has given to us. To estimate things as God estimates them. To value what he values. To esteem what he esteems. To use what he's given me the way he wants me to use it. And to place no trust in earthly things, but use them for the advancement of his agenda. Look, if if you squander what he gives you, If most of the time, if not all the time, you think nothing of what he cares about most, then how will you ever own what he has in eternity? How can you ever know that you live for him? How can you ever know you trust him? Look, at some point, a Christian of real faith who's a genuine believer is going to be asked to give up the things that he needs to be weaned off of so that he doesn't ruin his soul. Someone who actually knows Christ is going to be chastened and loved and cared for and conformed to Christ by weaning us off the things we find most comfort in in this life. Why? Because we're not useful. If, if you don't grow in Christ, you're not useful for the kingdom. If you don't grow in Christ, you become blind to that usefulness that you could have, and therefore you end up squandering privilege and therefore squandering other people. Look, I think about the church in our culture, evangelicalism in our culture. It has squandered the gospel. Why? We liked comfortability in the culture. We liked being liked by the culture. We thought that oh, if we don't, if, if we don't uh, do something to stop being criticized by the culture and being called narrow, we're going to lose our influence. And so we tried to manufacture influence and we tried to manufacture conversions. And in so doing, we made a whole lot of friends with the world and lost the gospel. That is precisely what Jesus is chiding the Pharisees for. You know the truth, but for pragmatic reasons and because you value money and power and success and prestige and because your pride loves it so, you've lost the gospel that's supposed to come through Israel. You've lost your Messiah. And the sad reality is that your children and children's children will not even know the clarity of the gospel. I think about evangelicalism today. You can walk into churches in any town USA and you will not often hear a straightforward, plain old gospel given to us from scripture. Why? Because we have for decades now forfeited that to get comfortable. God gave us the truth and we got comfortable. James 1, 9 to 11 says, look, let the, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in the high position of it. That's right. Man, if you have humble circumstances, don't, 
Don't wish for better things in this life so you can use it on your own comfort. Realize that in your humiliation, in your humble circumstances, the Lord has given you great opportunity to, to savor what is the condition of your heart, what matters most, to sanctify you in ways that make you more useful. And then he warns, let the brother of, of wealth... Let the person who has resources glory in humiliation. Of what kind? Well, first of all, knowing that your money could go, your wealth could go, all your earthly security could go just like that. And if it does, hey, rejoice in it. But realize this, even if God doesn't take it away, you should never trust in it. Because like flowering grass, it can be here today, gone tomorrow. Never trust in the things that you have and enjoy. Never. John Calvin said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. That's right. What you value is your reward. So back to Luke 16, lesson number four. The first lesson is to carefully assess your personal limitations. What do you need for eternity? Know the state of your soul. The second is sacrifice today's comforts for tomorrow's rewards. Do what God asks today. Don't worry about what he gives you in this life. Seek first the kingdom and you'll have it. Lesson three, what you value is your reward. And lesson four, there is no loving God and money. There is no loving God and money. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And he's not just talking merely about uh, the, the power to buy and sell with whatever currency a culture uses. He's talking about esteeming things in this life that you find security in. That's what he's talking about. There's no loving God and money. You know, it is tragic that so much of today's so-called evangelicalism is lost in a very similar problem the Pharisees had. They were lovers of money, verse 14 says, and they were scoffing at what Jesus was saying. Listen, sometimes evangelicals, professing evangelicals scoff at such teaching because they've been duped by the same ideology in the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the same that the Pharisees held. Hey, if you do this, if you obey this law, if you follow us, if you admire us, if you say that we're your spiritual leaders, you can have this success and you can have this eternal destiny. And they made all kinds of promises that earthly things could never deliver. And the prosperity gospel does the same. It says, look, if you give to this cause, if you uh, if you invest your money, your finances in this promise, this miracle, then God will and is obligated to do things for you. And people get duped in that all the time. Evangelicalism is full of those who profess to know Christ and yet believe actually in this mystical sort of give and take, some obligating of God to give you some earthly comforts here and now because of somehow giving money to some guru who's asking for it. And everybody down here at the low rank is making that guy rich. He's making him prosperous while you end up believing in something that can't save. This is all over the place. It's rampant. Listen, beloved, if you put your money in those kinds of messages, 
You need to come back to verse 13 and know this. If somebody serves money, they're not serving God. You cannot serve God and money. There's no loving God and money. If you estimate those things as the most important thing to secure your life, if that's what you love most, you do not love God most. And any prosperity teacher who tells you that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and and comfortable in this life is lying to you. Listen, Romans 8, I read it earlier. If the whole creation is groaning until the redemption of the sons of man, and mankind is also groaning because we've been changed on the inside, but we don't have a resurrection body yet, and that's going to happen until Christ comes. How can we then promise people something in this life that is not guaranteed at all? In fact, I've often thought, if there's a prosperity promise for human beings, hey, God wants you healthy and wealthy and comfortable in this life, then what is the creation supposed to do? Where's the prosperity promise for the earth and the universe? Where's the promise for that? I'll tell you why they don't promise that, because they can't deliver on some external joke of that. They can't. It's obvious that they don't turn the curse of the universe around with some prosperity gospel, so there's no reason for us to believe they're doing anything to the human soul, which is eternal. There's no loving God in money. Here's, here's some ways you can just practically know whether you're trusting in things of this life, okay? We're supposed to use everything for eternal influence. So it isn't just about material wealth, although the Pharisees are called lovers of money here. The implication is that everything about your life, everything about our lives ought to be anchored in what matters most to God. So the question is, how do we enjoy what we have and yet never trust in it? And how do we use what we have for eternal purposes? Well, I mean, first of all, Matthew 6.33 is sort of the driving principle, seek first the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? That means that your relationships are eternal relationships. Souls matter. Whomever God brings into your life at whatever level there's an open door, you are to think of that as an opportunity for eternity, eternal things, to affect a soul. I'm not saying you can share Christ with everyone because a lot of people don't want it. And there are some contexts where you just have to do your job and put your head down and be a witness by the very life you live. But, but in the end, you ought to be thinking and praying about relationships as though they are eternal. Souls live forever. So that's how you seek the kingdom. You promote Christ. You promote the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. We're not citizens here. We're we belong there. Our life is hidden there. Are you promoting that in your life? What do you do with your resources? What do you do with your talents, your intellect, your achievements, your skills, your earthly relationships? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? But then how do I know whether I'm trusting in some earthly thing? Here's some questions to think about. How do you know when you're trusting in the things that you have rather than in God? Well, will you sin to have them? And if you do have them, are you going to sin to hold on to them? Whatever you have, whatever God gives you, be it material wealth or, or just the way he's made you, the way he's wired you, the things you're able to do, the talents and skills you have or have been able to develop, the life you live, the privileged place you, you grew up, your heritage, whatever it may be, Whatever God's given you, will you sin to get that or hold on to it? 
then you know you're trusting in it. So can you give me an example? Yeah, will you lie on a resume to get the job you have to have? Will you be dishonest about who you are with someone to have the relationship you want? Will you cheat people in business? You know, overcharging them in ways you know you're overcharging them just so you can make an extra, secure your future? How about as an employee? Do you misuse company resources by stealing time and resources, not doing your job faithfully? How about those who say, oh, I'm a generous person? Are you a generous person? Or are you just generous to yourself and by comparison you're stingy with others? Lots of people say they're generous, but when it comes to losing something that's very precious to them, they don't really, they have an attachment to things that are most important to them. Ephesians 4 says that Christians are to work hard, yes, and even for the surplus, live off the surplus, but they're to work hard and set aside some for the people of God where needs come up. Do you ever think about spontaneous needs that come up? Are you generous just to yourself and not so much with others? That's a good test. What about anxiousness and, and worry? Are you anxious and worrisome about what you need? That's a test that you, you like earthly security more than you trust the Lord to secure you. Do you make excuses for the sin of worry, which we're commanded not to do? You make excuses, blaming it on circumstances. Well, if I had more resources, well, if I knew where my next meal was coming from, well, if I, if I just had a better health uh, record, if I just had a different family, if I just had different circumstances, then I wouldn't be as worrisome or anxious. No, you, you're likely trusting in the things of this life. If you have achieved some things, do you look down on people who haven't achieved them? There's so much snobbery in education, so much snobbery in wealth, so much snobbery in the things that we've achieved. Whatever it may be, do you look down on people who have achieved less than you, have less than you, are doing less than you? And do you find secret ways to boast about what you have? I know sometimes people with wealth find secret ways to boast about it. You know, they all want to be secret, but I remember a guy one time was was um, waiting till the last minute, you know, huge resources, and he was going to give them to this institution, and it was a Christian endeavor, and it was a great ministry opportunity. He was going to give them, and at some dinner party, he just promised it, you know, I want to do this. And then later, you know, three years later, nothing, we'd heard nothing. I mean, of course, you're not going to call the guy just because he promised something over dinner. You don't want to do that, although sometimes I wanted to. Hey, buddy. Um, remember this? <laughs> but you don't do that. You trust the Lord in those things. You want to be able to not be worried about those things either and sin the same sin you hope other people don't commit. But then at the last minute when a ministry opportunity is desperate and there's a great need and God's people are praying, that person wants to rush in at the last minute and write the big check and just be the knight in shining armor. This is a secret way to boast about what you have because you actually trust in what you have to give you a spiritual influence. How about another question? Do you secretly resent having to give to the work of the ministry? Do you secretly resent that? You know, God commands us to give to the church. I realize we live in a culture where uh, there's too much, um, you know, swindling that goes on and churches that talk about money and those kind of things. But I think about 
just the normal everyday command to give to the Lord out of our resources and in proportion to what he's given to us for the sake of the advancement of ministry, good ministry, faithful ministry, imperfect but faithful ministry. What about that? Do you secretly resent having to give? If you do, you're attached to this life. God commands us to do it. It's a joy. We're to do it cheerfully, joyfully, sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom. I don't want to measure it here and now. It's not a bank. I'm not investing in the church and telling, hey, where'd you spend my money? That's not the point. You give it to the Lord and in eternity, the eternal things are measured by God. And what you wanted to give, he, he loves and he uses. How about this? How about earthly comforts in general? Do you use the comforts of this life to temporarily lift your spirits when you, when you know the cause is a spiritual one? In other words, you don't go get scripture and counsel to work on the spiritual issues of your life. You use earthly comforts to temporarily feed your, your desire or your need, and therefore you're satisfied with temporary satisfaction rather than eternal ones, sanctification. That's a sign that you are attached to this life. Do you love it when others admire what you have? I think about this a lot. You know, you come up to an intersection and some really, really sweet car drives up and parks next to you there at the light, you know. And everybody's going, ooh, look at that, you know. And then the light turns and there he goes. And that's it. That's his reward. Everybody said, wow. And, you know, I understand that. You sit in those vehicles. Hey, man, this is really, wow. People are going to look at me. And you know what? That's right. People will look at you. And then that's it. You get to go home and say, yeah, $135,000, people looked at me. Some actually were probably thinking, that's a really stupid waste of money. But you don't know that because they're looking through their window and all you care about is, yeah, they're looking at me. You're attached to things here, attached to your house, attached to your property, the way it looks, the admiration you get from people over your skills, your achievements, where you travel, the clothes you wear, your friendships. Do you love it when you are admired for those things? Listen, God puts a different value on them. They're not eternal things. They're not to be used for our glory. These things are to be laid before the Lord in thanksgiving. Lord, if you want to take them from me because it would rob me of my love for you, then do so. If you need them for some eternal venture, use it. If you need my resources, my home, my car, everything I have, I lay it before you. It was given to me anyway. I'm a steward of it. Am I using it to secure eternal riches because if you're not then the message for you is God doesn't put that estimation on things remember what he said to the Pharisees the end of verse 15 that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God and we'll expand on that fifth lesson next time beloved here it is right here we must know that what is eternal matters most. And what a pagan would do to secure his earthly security 
is sometimes thought about, concentrated on, and more effort put into than Christians put into all that God's given us in this temporary life, and we use less of it than a pagan would for his interests. We use less of it for God's interests because we don't estimate these things properly. Listen, enjoy what God has given you, but ask yourself the question, Lord, is there any way that you can maximize my life better by making me less of a consumer and more of a giver? If you can take any of this away from me so it doesn't rob me of my love for you, so that it weans me off my trust in these things, is there anything you can do to use me and spend me for the souls of other people, for the redemption of even one more sinner? Is there any way that you can use these things for the ministry, for the advancement of the direct work of equipping the saints and scattering to evangelize? Is there any relationship you want me to be a part of that I haven't yet given myself to you to be a part of? Is there any way in which I do trust in the things that I have and the things that I've achieved and in a way that's stealing, trying to steal your glory? If that's the case, Lord, remove it. Take it away. Get rid of it. Help me to extract myself from it so that those things don't chew up my usefulness and fritter it away and squander it. Or worse, I don't pass on earthly values to the next generation and destroy their soul. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for the straightforwardness of the words of our Lord, how they challenge us. Please forgive us for how attached we are to the things of this life as if they really could take care of eternal things. It is true that sometimes we concentrate less on using the little things for your glory than even a pagan would to secure his earthly future. And we should concentrate more. We know the truth. We know eternal things. We know the emptiness of trusting in things here. And sometimes we don't live for the kingdom very often. And so we pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to not sin, to hold on to things here. Help us to be trusting in you and not worrisome. Always generous, not a consumer, but a giver. Never making excuses. Always looking to your goodness. Never boasting about earthly things. Nor having any secret resentments about having to lay it all in front of you for your use. May we always think first of the kingdom and your work and your purposes and then help us to build relationships and use what you've given us not only for the enjoyment with which you intend it but but also to advance and ultimately be spent for your work for redemptive purposes. Help us see clearly and discern these things as we examine our personal lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.